Good evening and welcome to Sign the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and today I've got a very special guest. His name is Vincent McGovern. He is from the UK. He is also an author of the book titled The War on Dads and Children. Based on having obtained five ombudsman investigations, three parliamentary ombudsmen, and also quite pivotal in procuring the first ever investigation by the European European Union Commission into the systemic failings in the UK family court process. He is also chair of two branches of the UK's largest shared parenting charity, Families Need Fathers, Central and North London. In this capacity, he sees over 900 attendees per year pre-COVID, somewhat less via Zoom. Below is his 2020 presentation to the ICMI 20 conference and his views are his own he doesn't speak for the charity and i will include that in the podcast notes it's a youtube video and also in regards to his book this book describes the unholy war perpetrated by the myriad state agencies perhaps in some case unwittingly against loving fathers remaining in their children's lives post-divorce or separation the author has had five ombudsman investigations to his credit three were parliamentary and his credentials are exemplary he has never been cautioned charged or arrested yet he is he and his children were subjected to the most appalling gender discrimination imaginable by multiple state agencies operating in secrecy. This book is a how to survive and most importantly, protect vulnerable children and parents by exposing this institutional malpractice. And I completely welcome you, Vincent McGovern, to slam the gavel. Thank you. An honor and privilege to be here. I'm glad to have you here. So you can tell us, you know, what's been going on in your family court system over there in the UK. Well, sadly, it is um, a downward slope, particularly since 2013. Um, the made changes to legal aid, which is where members of the public can access publicly funded uh, legal assistance. And in 2016, they really copper fastened that. So now you have a situation where 85% uh, of legal aid is uh, given to females and only less than 15% given to deserving males. Mm -hmm. But the gateway to obtaining the legal aid has become so gendered that it is effectively impossible for men to qualify for it. And the principal gateway is you have to alleged domestic violence. You do not need to have evidence, particularly since 2016. So this has led to, for example, 300%, in excess of 300% allegations of domestic violence since uh, 2013. So apparently all the fathers in Britain have become 300% more violent than they were prior to 2013. What mm. a shock. This of course means that there's a huge increase in false allegations. And going with that is the fact that occasionally mothers who find themselves in this system are then taken over by the system, cannot all substantiate the false allegations, which they have been uh, propelled, put the politely, or perhaps compelled to make to the various agencies and uh, charities. And we'll put a question mark before and after the charity there, I can tell you, the charities. And then quite too often those mothers then lose residents of their children, or worse still, sometimes the children are taken into care. The UK has the largest amount of children in care in the European Union, even though it's no longer in the European Union. It has the worst outcomes for children's post-divorce or separation among the first world nations, and uh, 37 first world nations. And surprise, surprise, with that, it costs the most for the worst system. It is 40, around 49 billion pounds is the yearly cost. And the enforcement of non-compliance with court orders is, according to Hansard, the House of Parliament log, 1.24% of enforcement orders are actually enforced. 98.6% failure rate in enforcement. It is 
dire. And the cost is spiraling juvenile delinquency, knife crime to many hundreds of percent, dropouts, drug running. Virtually an alternative economy is being developed by sinister forces, gangster elements and all the rest, who have an endless supply of disaffected young children from the poorer communities because the thrust of this is upon the poorer communities. They're the ones who lose out the most. They haven't the education, they haven't the financial means to be able to protect themselves. And it is, that's why I call it, as my book is titled, a death war on dads and children. But I emphasize mothers lose terribly too. Much less percentage than fathers, but the loss is great, if not greater. It is, um, I, as we had talked earlier, uh, I was reading about last year or so, it could have been a year and a half ago, that a woman had had her children taken away in court and she had just, dro just dropped dead of a heart attack right there in the courtroom. In 2014, myself and a German father managed to get to the European Union Commission, uh, to the Petitions Commission, on its motion of systemic failings, UK family court services. And around the same time, there was a leading court case in the UK, among a few others, which led to a 53% decrease in forced adoptions from usually foreign mothers who English wasn't the first language. So you should consider this, 53% reduction in a matter of months from what was basically, I hesitate to use the word child trafficking because there was negative connotations with uh, sex industry and all the rest. But it is definitely barbaric that so many, generally women, had their children taken off them. And what at times were copy and paste decisions, as my book references in one of them, for the social worker who wrote the report to the judge had never seen the child. Mm. Uh, it, it's appalling to think that such draconian punishment can be visited upon a parent purely because of procedures or protocols untested, unverified. I mean, the average person in the street, if they were fully aware of this, they would be horrified. But of course, the average person in the street, by and large, wants to believe that the system is working relatively good, just as I used to believe myself, that only a few bad people get caught in this system, not good people like you and me and all the rest. I'm sorry, not that simple. You have to open your eyes to the scale of the problem here and the huge cost to society financially and psychologically and crime and prisons. It's appalling. It's a massive industry. Do you find that um, debtor's prison is used if a parent cannot pay child maintenance? Effectively, it is debtor's prison. Yes, it, it is happening. There's not that many fathers now. I'm not involved in the finances. I'm purely involved in shared parenting. I okay. don't touch the finances. But uh, yes, I'm hearing that there is effectively the same thing. Restrictions on your work, restrictions on your passport, restrictions on your license. And a highly bureaucratized system that is extraordinarily inefficient. Every few years, its title changes. So you have the same circus, different clowns, with an 80% failure rate, I believe. But that is not my speciality, nor neither do I ever wish it to be. Mm -hmm. With the shared parenting, um, how far have you gone with that, talking with uh, Parliament? Uh, it is going backwards every year. Exa moves mm -hmm. backwards. The militarization of domestic violence by primarily the female lobby, and the associated legal eagles, who always ride on the back of trouble, of course, have made it much, much worse. You have a situation now in the UK where there's an attempted revision to bring in uh, parental alienation as being included under domestic violence, which is, to me, it should be at the very top of that list because mm -hmm. it's about protecting children. But the, the desperation of the vested interests and the, when I say feminist, I don't mean feminist as in the ordinary feminist in society who believes in equality, equal of opportunity. I'm talking about the extreme ends of them. Mm 
The desperation on them, by them, to prevent this, for the protection of children to become part of law, is shocking to witness, and it will probably fail to be part of law, and children will be just used as a weapon, even more so. Children are weaponized very easily in this family court system. They are the first choice of weaponization. Them, it's always said that in any conflict, the first casualty is the truth. I would say in the family courts, the first casualty is the children. And the second casualty is the truth. I would reverse it a bit for family courts. And what you see is a situation where 95% of the alienators in the UK are female, because that reflects the amount of those who have residence per court orders and outside of court. And in Nigeria, it is the other way around. Fathers, because Nigeria is much more male-orientated. What's desperately needed is an in-between situation where parental alienation is recognized in the same way as drunken driving is, or boorish behavior, flatulence and public speeches, all that sort of thing. It just has to be publicized, recognized, and dealt with. Because there's no use to UK forever saying that the welfare of the child is a paramount consideration when the child is the first thing to be weaponized. Mm -hmm. It's a mockery. Mm -hmm. With the shared parenting, which is good, um, it, and it can happen because I did a podcast with Jim and Julie uh, maybe last month or so, but they show that it's able to, they were able to co-parent with their exes. There are many people able to co-parent, but the problem is that in the UK, the definition of shared parenting, and I quote from Parliament, can be one Christmas card per year. Mm. We're not talking 50-50. There is no time allocation. The excuse used to prevent it was that the judges were already too burdened and couldn't be tasked with this extra job by the anti-share parenting lobby. Share parenting is a figure of convenience. It's a flag. It is post-divorce separation. And the UK has the worst outcomes in the developed nations to such an extent that, for example, in 2020, 50% of 15-year-olds do not consider their father to be a part of the family. They don't have regular contact with him. Whereas the uh, EU, European Union figure is something like 80, 85%. And in uh, Finland, which is only 2% of its cases end up in court, tiny majority, tiny minority, sorry. It is uh, 90% of children consider the father to be an integral part of the family even though they're separated and have regular contact, including visiting contact with him. The bottom line is that there is huge money to be made by the abuse of children because of so many vested interests right on the back of it, ideological and financial. So at all stages, the child is a vehicle of convenience, mm -hmm. sadly and sickly. Not by all, there's many good people in the system. Sorry, there's some good people in the system, but mm -hmm. it's a very bad system. Mm -hmm. and you cannot book the system. If you're in that system, you speak out or whatever, you're jettisoned. As my book demonstrates about a few people who tried to bring about improvement, one social worker called Neveres Kamal, and the, her local services, who she was an integral part of, threatened to remove her children. Mm -hmm. Now, to the average mother, and 85% of the workers in this system are female, who is going to threaten a system that it's the power to take your children away, like that, overnight. Mm -hmm. That is an awesome power to hold over a human. It's just, uh, it's just very corrupt. I mean, it's corrupt over here too. There's no uh, getting out of it. Once you get into family court, you're sucked into oh, it. Oh, it's an alligator. It's an alligator. Mm -hmm. Now the teeth are far too strong. Once you're in, that's it. <laughs> right. Right. There's no getting out until, I don't know, until I'd like to say it's run its course or the kids have aged out. Well, when I say there's no getting out of it, or when you say no, there's no getting out of it, even if uh, you leave after two, three, four, or 20, 30, or 40 hearings, let's say you decide to press the eject button and you leave, but then you're not seeing your children. So you're not getting out of it. You're quite right. Then if 
not guaranteed your children come to see you when they're adults. They're usually quite damaged emotionally, psychologically, mm -hmm. with the years of separation. Not because they've missed you particularly as a person, but because they have been subjected to such subliminal manipulation, emotional manipulation about what you were like. You have become a monster, whether you're male or female. If you're the woman who's not seeing the children, you become the witch from hell in those mm -hmm. children's minds. If you're the man, you become almost satanic. Mm -hmm. And this is half of these children's DNA. This is half of their makeup, mm -hmm. what they are. So that leads them usually having a very high percentage of issues, particularly third level education. When they begin to think for themselves and the stress of education and all the rest, it all comes on top of them. But once again, you have another coterie of professionals earning a living out of children's mental health. So the children never get out of it either. You ask the average child, there's been research done here, what is the biggest impact on their lives? And they nearly always tell you when the divorce occurred and they got split from a parent. <laughs> and the closer they were to that parent, which is usually the primary carer, and of course there are some brutal primary carers, but the vast majority are not. Uh, the more damage that is to the children, and quite often the more damage to the primary carer as well, because the more you love your children, the more you suffer in this business. <laughs> it rips your entrails out. Yes, I agree with that. It's, it's just very damaging to fit parents, target parents that are having mm -hmm. their kids taken away. Mm -hmm based on either a false allegation oh, quite often yes it's an industry of false allegations in the uk mm -hmm. legal aid sentence and punishment of offenders i mean what a title it really was copper fast in 2016 when there's a provision within it which stated that uh, mothers don't have to have documentary evidence of being domestically abused you just had to make the allegations in some agencies run with that big time other areas are less forceful about it but it is a system designed to facilitate and promote false allegations. Of course, using the vehicle of the welfare of the child. So you have unregulated agencies, unaccountable, untrained, other than in basic bigotry, as far as I can see, who have so much control of the gateway for working class people into the family courts. And this vigilantism is so rife, but it's not spoken about. Yeah, it, it's, it's the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Speaking about the UK, that's where I have far too much knowledge on. I wish I had far less. I, ne I never signed uh -huh. up for this course. But uh -huh. of course, when we talk about children we put into adoption, people would think of crackhead, deadbeat mums and dads, alcoholics, violent people, drug addicts. Of course they exist, but they are not the majority. They are a minority. There is a need for a certain amount of adoption. There is a need for a certain amount of care proceedings and foster proceedings. But it has to be based on impartial professionalism, not on what you currently have, which as far as I can see is child endangering gender discrimination. And whichever parent is targeted, in the UK it's 90% of fathers over 90% are targeted, but male or female, once you're targeted, and the system seems to go into overdrive when it targets a mother in the UK, it really goes into overdrive to justify this targeting. As if they want to show, look, we're not biased. And I have found that the mothers who lose the most in this business are what I would describe as too honest and too willing to express an opinion based on a sense of honor, love of the children and integrity, and not aware of the system they are in. By the time to find out, too late. They have lost. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Oh. It's just, uh, you know, um, do people appeal decisions routinely? It is virtually impossible to appeal a decision in the UK if you're litigant in person. There's another name for it in the, sta in the United States. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a Latin expression. Because... Number one, the judge who you're appealing against gets the opportunity to run over the judgment and the transcript, take out what he or she doesn't like. I can only appeal on three very narrow grounds, which are that the judge erred in law, 
the judge give too much attention to what he or she shouldn't have, or the judge gave too little attention to what he or she shouldn't have. But all that, you see, is covered by the umbrella of judicial notice, for the judge has a wide discretion. So it's virtually impossible for a, a, a non-legal person, particularly a parent, an average parent in society, as litigant person of whatever the American equivalent is, to be able to appeal. And that is the real protective mechanism of the system. Yeah. Of course, when you get up to the higher courts, particularly in the UK, you have a far better standard of judge, far better understanding of complex issues and to bring them down to narrow. But that's meaningless at the cold face for the vast majority of people, where lawyers' wages in the UK, in London, are about £200 an hour. Mm -hmm. That is more than most people's weekly income mm -hmm. that I am dealing with. And £40,000 does not get you very far in contested hearings. Because once you bring in the other agencies, state-funded agencies, I might add, with their mountainous paperwork, you have actually no chance of being able to deal with it. Because most people have to try an air on a living. And if you're smashed by the system and you're ill or depressed or whatever, your cognitive ability is hugely reduced. Mm -hmm. At one stage, I would say I was reduced about 60-70%. But I just was smart enough to do nothing because I knew there was something big here. So I did like a wounded animal, lie under a stone for a few weeks till I began to get my, my ability to think back, my mm -hmm. ability to do simple things. And I'm one of the ones who recovered. But... Um, an awful lot of people do not recover. Mm -hmm. Or the way of recovery is to distance themselves as much as possible from it. Which, of course, then manifests itself in problems later on for them in their personal lives, in their working lives, because of the, the depression, the demons they have to deal with on their own. And those demons, you said when you get into family courts, you never get out of it. The only way you get out of it is when you die. Mm -hmm. And that's a very harsh pronouncement to make. Mm -hmm. Are things changing in the UK as far as, you know, I know you said kind of parliament, it's just kind of going down, but mm -hmm. is there hope that it can change? At the moment, the hope is delusional by and large. Um, all ideas of equality do not exist. All the international laws concerning equality and opportunity of service provision from government-funded agencies and local authorities. You see, in the UK, they are qualified. They are not absolute. So people coming to the meetings will tell us that they have rights under this law, that law. They don't. And that is a huge obstacle for them and their mind to overcome that they have no rights. Ties the mothers as well, they have no rights. The rights are with the child only. But unfortunately, the rights of the child are hijacked by so many agencies and vested interests within the system. And don't forget, it is a secret system, so there's not much scrutiny of what they're doing, that uh, I see it over the last number of years becoming progressively worse every year. Since 2013, there was improvements until 2013 when there's a presumption of shared parenting on the statute books. And a lot of people believed it's going to come in. And when it did come in, it, it was watered down to shared parenting can mean one Christmas card a year. And <laughs> since then, it has gone progressively worse, usually for fathers, but particularly for children. Mm. Why are these judges... Um just axing off that parent? Um, do they not care? Are they tired? Do they want to go golfing? I mean... Well, you see, the term judge does not apply to the vast majority of family courts in the UK. You have what's called lay magistrates. Mm. And there's usually two and sometimes three of them, meant to be three. Because not that judges retire, judges change in their pension and all the rest. And this is a toxic system. It's very tiring on the human. And there are certainly good judges in the system. But to mind them, you see, the, the Children and Family Court Advisory Support Service for the UK, it's got an excess of a £1 billion budget. And its um, agency that it refers to domestic violence perpetrators to 
is only for males. They refuse to accept that females can be victim, can be perpetrators of domestic violence. That includes violence against children, I might add, broadly speaking. So the, the, the magistrates who are untrained, because if they're trained, they're not allowed to be magistrates, are completely led by this very persuasive language from the court advisor, who we keep hearing is the court advisor. Also, it's in law that the court cannot stray from that advisor's recommendations without giving good legal reason. Well, these magistrates have no legal knowledge, so how can they give legal reason? So it's absurd. Mm -hmm. And it also means that if a mother falls foul of the system in the beginning, as happens to a certain percentage, you didn't get the domino effect of mm -hmm. the big blocks rolling down on top of you, the avalanche, the multiple avalanche. And that won't change in the UK because these people genuinely believe they're doing the right thing because the recommendation before them by the court officer recommended such and such. Mm -hmm. So that is their ideological screen, their, uh, their protection of their sense of conscience. They don't mean to do badly, they mean to do well. They simply don't know what they're doing, by and large. And if they're not allowed, because it's so easy to overturn them on appeal when there's legal representation involved. And usually in the UK, the father is not legally represented, 85% of the time. The mother is, usually with a state-aided lawyer. They completely rule, rule, rule the dice. They control the play because these magistrates are just there like three studios effectively. Mm -hmm. Once again, mean and well, easily outmaneuvered by the combination of the court advisor and the lawyer, usually for the mother. Of course, when the reverse applies, equal disaster. Consider this Children and Family Court Advice and Support Service. In 2017, less than 2% of their officers had attended a webinar, a seminar put out by this service on parental alienation. Right, mm -hmm. yet in 2019, something like 95% of them had attended a webinar on how to claim expenses. <laughs> I'm sorry, mm -hmm. where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean, I think those two figures demonstrate so much of what is wrong. Now, I have had the privilege of conferences I've helped organize to Central London Branch of Families Need Fathers, uh, had the former CEO of Kafka's addresses in 2017 on parental alienation, Sir Anthony Douglas. And this video can be seen on our website. And he addressed it brilliantly. No management jargon, no spoofology, just his personal experiences, which is quite harrowing. But that bears no relation to what happens at ground level. Same with the judges. The senior judges, when you interview them, and we've had uh, His Honour Judge Stephen Wildblood, Wildblood, apologies, addresses at the same conference in 2017. His video was so incisive, so critical of the failings in the system. And when a learned judge wants to criticise something, they can do it so much better than the likes of me, because they have such a command of knowledge of English. They have that commanding personality about them because they have such intellect. But Unfortunately, at ground level, it's totally unrelated to what is happening higher up. There's a vast disparity. Do these judges or magistrates, do they understand the mechanisms of parental alienation? Many of them will not even recognize it, acknowledge its existence. Because they will hide behind, until a few years ago, Kafka's would not acknowledge it. Now they do. But for years, Kafka's would say, you're trying to bring in parental alienation syndrome. This is a means of ridiculing it as being a syndrome. Mm -hmm. So this is the method of deflecting against it. See, the sad thing is that in the UK, there's this absolute belief throughout all the systems that one parent good, one parent bad. There's no concept of shared parenting, other than as a vague Augustinian principle. And that is 90-odd percent is the mother's, whether the best parent or not, in each individual circumstance is a different question. And it's about 5 to 7 percent are the fathers. The problem is, whoever has power is too prone to abusing it. 
And if a mother is booted from the family home through manipulation of the system, and it does happen, the system then goes into overdrive to push her out. But once again, we're back to Kafka's. They will virtually never acknowledge parental alienation. You know, it now exists in their toolkit. So the biggest elephant in the room, I always say, if you to make an application to court to see your children, or to have any sort of a meaningful contact with your children, you're already a victim of parental alienation, and so are your children. But the elephant in the room is not being addressed. The politicization of false allegations of domestic violence, that is dominant. And the definition of coercive or control is now so broad in law since 2015 that the training on the states, which once again is in my book from Coram Chambers training, that if I quote, if a man is silent, he is coercive and controlling because he may become violent. How can you not be violent? Your violence is deemed by gender, by the training in too many of these. So apparently alienation doesn't get a look in because domestic violence perpetrator gets the highlights. And if the mother is the parent who isn't seeing her children in the percentage of cases that has happened, it's usually been that she has psychological issues, she has unresolved mental health issues, she has undiagnosed mental health issues. And of course, she's so busy trying to bat them back that the cases just drag on and on, and she doesn't get a chance to really get to the meat of the issue, which is about the children having the right to a proper relationship with her. Mm -hmm. so there's, different, there's different vehicles being used, depending on the gender, to oust them. Mm -hmm. Because when people think of shared parenting, we, I think people are thinking, well, you know, 50-50 shared custody must be happening over in England. Yeah. People don't realize that this is not <laughs> happening over Absolutely in England. Not. Absolutely not. It's the complete opposite. Unfortunately, it starts off once you get into family courts so far too often is 0% versus 100%. It's anything but 50-50. Now, for the record, I am not an advocate of 50-50 automatically hmm. because it's simply impossible to exercise in practicality. But to me, unless there's criminal investigations with evidence demonstrating abuse of a child by a parent of either gender, mm -hmm. it should be starting from 50-50 and working to say no less than about 30%, depending on logistics, geography, work, things like that. The law is, and the judicial guidelines from England and Wales, are that the children have a right to a proper relationship with both parents and the wider families. That's absolutely wonderful if it happened. That's the guidance, it's not the law. You bring that into court, you're told it's not the guidance and each case is different. So what's the guidance dealing with? Hmm? The guidance is set, thrown aside. So this is the guidance from the judiciary, from the senior judges. This is what's given the politicians and all the rest as being an example of what they walk towards. But the outcome is completely different. Hmm. What happens you know, these children now, you know, they're, they're programmed and taught to hate the other parent. Far too often. Right. And why can't this be brought to the magistrate and judge's attention? Or do they just because, not want to hear it? Because nowadays in the UK, well, number one, they don't want to hear it. Two, there's no opportunity to hear it. Because the huge increase in all molestations against the fathers generally, uh, on the grounds of domestic violence, totally unproven, most of the time, uh, that takes over. Mm -hmm. So the parental alienation never gets a look in, which is the elephant in the room. That's what's, These allegations have only been used to drive the other parent out, male or female, 90% percent is male driven out. But the parental alienation never gets a look in. By the time it gets a look in, after possibly 18 months, two years of proceedings, so only a very capable person can survive in the system against the uh, vast apparatus and to bring it to meaningful effect. So if you get to the higher courts, parental alienation will certainly be quite often dealt with. But at the lower courts, if you bring it in, you're deemed to be guilty of coercive and controlling behavior because you're abusing the other parent. Mm -hmm. It's a complete reversal of logic. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Would it be fair to say all of this has gotten way out of hand? Totally out of hand. But because it's in secret, it is unverified. Mm -hmm. But out of hand is putting it politely, but it's a very good choice of words. Mm -hmm. In your courtrooms, there is no video or tamper-proof mics at all. Um, it's totally illegal, a contempt of court, to record anything if you've been in your own recording device, like in a hidden secret of phone or something. The narrative, the, the, when the judgments are given on contested hearings, and many hearings never get the contested level, they're what's called directions level, and that's a pretty absurd term in itself. There is no effective evidence. Magistrates' courts are meant to be uh, recorded, but not all have the system in place. The system isn't always maintained. The system isn't always working. It's a complete lottery. And you can only use it for appeal. But, you know, it's virtually impossible for the average person to penetrate because it's in the hands of the vested interest, the experts. And the average person isn't going to compete too well with them. Mm -hmm. Now, when you wrote your book... Yes. Um, how long did it take you to write all of this, uh, the war on dads and children? It, like, when did you write it and how long did it take you? Well, the first chapter was just one of the longer chapters. It's uh, maybe 30 pages, I believe. I wrote that in 2013 because I was assisting another dad on uh, his term is unregulated where there's a group of 10 people who had expertise in various professions linked to the family courts who heard the whistleblow. Mm -hmm. uh, to nobody's great surprise, I was the only one who completed the chapter. There were meant to be 10, 10 chapters comprising this book from 10 different types of individuals, different specialities. Because I had at that stage, I believe, three ombudsman's investigations, uh, two of them were parliamentary, which is the highest level. I was considered an expert. Then, because I've had arthritis of the hips from uh, too many years of various sports and activities. In 2016, winter 2016, I had another, had a replaced hip. And for the next two months, that's when I did most of my work with the book. And I have been working for a number of years, part-time as a sort of a rough landscape gardener. I'm not one of these people who can take notes and work from them. That's not how I work. Mm -hmm. So when I'd be pushing my lawnmower, I'd be going through ideas in my head because I'd have earmuffs on to, to protect the noise. So I had undisturbed thinking time. And I didn't have a smartphone because I was too dumb. They only got one two months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I'm late to the 21st century, I can tell you. But I could go into the fourth, fifth, sixth stage of thinking. And I could come up with a good line that would be the introductory paragraph. And then, you see, I could do the rest of the chapter quite often. Because I had all the bits of references in my head. I knew what I wanted to look up at. That's the advantage of uh, the internet nowadays. If you have knowledge in your head from snippets of information, you can verify it. So the first draft was done in about three months. Mm -hmm. And then it was quite heavily edited, particularly the following summer by my McKenzie friend, a lay advisor in the family court, who had helped me so much. And he's a bachelor of education, teaches English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, when I sent him my first chapter, I was expecting praise and well done, and bestseller and Hemingway aspirations. Right. <laughs> when the chapter came back, I honestly believed he bought shares in the Red Ink factory. Red Ink, Red Ink, I couldn't believe oh, it. Oh, no. Oh, devastated. Of course, you see, the problem was, having never written, I had no concept of contextual logic, contextual mm. flow. So to me, it made perfect sense. Probably made no sense to anyone else. So I had a wealth of information buried in contradictory manners, not complementary. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand this, you see. So it was very hard for me to adjust to this different way of presenting it. And I spent 55 of the most miserable hours of my life in his room with me with my laptop and him with a laptop, working side by side, line by line, sentence by sentence, and I have a habit of saying things, and the proof is in the next paragraph, the next page. No, no, he wouldn't let me do that, you see. 
I couldn't mm. understand why he was correct. I hated this because it went against my style. But actually, despite the fact there's still a few errors in it, because anyone who's written a book knows, and I've only written one book, every time you look at it, you see an error here, an error there. Mm -hmm. But I realized, hey, it's fit for purpose. The information is there. It's mm -hmm. accurate. It can be verified. It's pushing boundaries, certainly. But it's pushing no boundary I cannot verify. I have boxes of documentary evidence hard copy uh some of them elsewhere in case shall we say i'm subject to an accidental break-in mm. or and evidence disappears because i know that there's people not private people um vested interest who would like to remove my evidence let's put it that way mm -hmm. so i have to protect myself that way to my astonishment i've not been sued so far mm -hmm. and because of course i had the five homicides investigations you see my background and what I still do part time is as an engine builder, I restore classic motorbikes. Mm. And a very good friend of mine who since a complete mental breakdown because of this business, it is a brutal, brutal cost on humans. Mm -hmm. I was saying that I wanted somehow to demonstrate that the fault failings in this system was like a broken engine. An engine is meant to do something. It's not doing it. Why is it not doing it? What's needed to fix it? That was my way of looking at it and he thought for an evening and he came up with conduct requirement consequences remedy so what's the conduct of a professional in this case then you look up the requirement of what they're meant to do mm -hmm. unfortunately the requirement is so nebulous as to be almost meaningless but nevertheless there are certain standards they're meant to adhere to then you meant to look at the consequences of their conduct not matching the requirement because these are highly paid and highly trained professionals. Because obviously, if they took a shortcut towards achieving the proper objective, then the requirement and the conduct would be excused, shall we say. Hmm. But when they have deliberately trashed the requirements by the conduct, and the consequences are severe, usually upon children, then what is the remedy? So once I got my mind around to this version of diagnosing an engine, shall we say. That's how I managed to get my five ombudsman sophistications because I kept it ultra short and simple. No more than two pages ever. And it's like playing cards. You know very well at the beginning, you're going to be fobbed off, but very quickly they will hire professionals to deal with you. The local borough, Brent, hired an ex-parliamentary ombudsman to deal with me as a consultant. Okay, no doubt that with other people as well. But when my complaints are getting somewhere, suddenly they just went and spent a six-figure sum on a per annum of taxpayer money to protect themselves from the malpractice. Suddenly you're dealing with a hugely increased level of sophistication and ability. And uh, I realized that this is the course that my life has led towards. And that's when I determined that this information has to be got out. I have to write a book about it. All this has to be brought out, not for my personal story, my personal story regarding my children. Everybody versus the same story. What's unique about that? Nothing. But what's unique about mine is the extraordinary facilitation and promotion of hilariously false allegations and their acceptance by the court officers and their desperation to convict me basically based on these absurd allegations. And that is where I have to say credit to the family court. I was in front of senior judges from an early stage because obviously they saw the case as quite serious. And they dismissed a lot of this nonsense, including the court officers' uh, recommendations, which were numerous. Mm. Basically that I'm a monster, shouldn't be seeing the children, or only very limited supervision because they were promoting the false allegations. And when I denied the false allegations, they were accusing me of um, oppressing the mother because I'm denying the false allegations. Like, it's Kafka-esque. <clears throat> so it then wasn't until 2021 that the book actually got published because no publisher would touch it. <clears throat> I know I could have gone down the self-publishing route. That'd lead to a readership of about, what, 50? <laughs> Big <clears throat> deal. <clears throat> and uh, every publisher I contacted either ignored me or I didn't fit their business model. I mean, mm -hmm. no male publisher in the UK 
wants to publish a book that's going to lead to uh, hordes, as I've had myself at the Parental Alienation Conference in 2017, hordes of angry women outside with placards denouncing you as being male chauvinist pig, all that sort of thing. It is a female publisher, Becky Banning of Grove House Publishing, who read my book and said, let's get this out, Benson. It's far too important. And I find in this campaigning business I'm involved in for several years, it's women who are doing by far the best work. Mm -hmm. And they're mostly grandmothers, astonishingly, mm -hmm. who are, you know, these were quite sometimes professional women, not all of us. And they are just the ones that grasp the issue, see what's needed to be done. Men, particularly the educated ones, have been educated to the university system in the UK and the humanities system. They spend so much time analyzing. That's all they do is analyze. Mm -hmm. So what? You want to be Buddha? Analyze your neighbor? That's all you're going to be doing. And they cannot grasp the essence of the malpractice. They keep believing that they are the one that slipped through the net. They are so special that the system turned up to get them. They're just one of tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but their ego and delusion is a huge handicap. That's, I, I'm glad you wrote this book. I'm glad uh, it got published. I'm delighted. That's, yeah, that's a great accomplishment. Thank you. you know, so um, where can people find your book? Um, it uh, is only available online. And it is uh, Amazon is the principal source. Also Waterstones, that international book people. If you Google it, the war on dads and children, and the sap line is how to fight it and win. Because there's no good presenting a solution without being a problem. I put my name next to it. There's a lot of sites selling it, international booksellers. Because uh, Becky Banning, deputy manager of Grosvenor House Publishing, uh, insisted that I do an excellent 100 word blurb. It's actually 101 blurbs, which describes the, the unwitting war and dads and children and all the rest that you've read, which is the top half of the back page. And that has a, uh, got quite a bit of attention. So very few reviews, I have to say. I'm not mm -hmm. surprised. Uh, the book has been sent to all of senior politicians and judges relating to family courts in the UK. And I haven't even gotten acknowledgement so far. I'm not surprised. But that, I knew that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it is dependent on people such as yourself. Uh, thank you promoting it. It is dependent upon you or listeners with an interest in this, with some knowledge, with desire to stop society becoming an abyss of vested interest, taking advantage of children and vulnerable parents. Mm -hmm. It is dependent upon a few of those making action. I always say knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. If you haven't got knowledge, you're totally powerless. And unfortunately, the suppression of knowledge is a big industry in the UK, and possibly in the US as well, in relation to the family courts and their failings that the public are told one thing, and the reality for too many parents is completely the opposite. Mm -hmm. I suppose in some regards, despite being an Irishman, I'm a bit like the American belief that, I mean, it's the first major country to be formed in the last 300 years. <laughs> Incredible accomplishment, really. Mm -hmm. And the founding fathers that everybody is equal. Okay, at that stage, women didn't have to vote and so on. Black people didn't have to vote, but that all changed through time. Should have been changed earlier, but better late than ever. I absolutely have that belief that everybody is equal, mm -hmm. which is delusion in the UK family course, but I have that belief. And the second and more important belief I would say I have is that all children are entitled to a childhood. Mm -hmm. They're entitled to uh, an emotionally free childhood to play, to laugh, to enjoyment, with both parents and the wider families, unless there's criminal evidence that that is a danger to the children. Mm -hmm. Why should grannies be excluded from seeing their grandchildren? Mm -hmm. They spent years rearing their own children, normally in quite poor circumstances with endless labor. And then when they have a bit of money and a bit of time, the grandchildren come along and they have then a the bit of time to spoil the grandchildren. Suddenly at a second's notice, that child's love for them is taken away, mm -hmm. smashed by a malignant parent. Mm -hmm. That's a cruel abuse. Mm -hmm. So I cannot understand why feminists do not make this a real issue of how so much women are losing out, particularly the grandparents, the aunts. I know of cases where grandparents and aunts of the children have reared the children while the mother, usually, 
was a professional in a career, meets a new man, decides to get rid of her dead man, as she certainly decides he is, moves the children away, and won't let the children see anyone in his family. Why should those people be suffering because of a whim? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But above all, why should the state be sponsoring and funding such abusive behavior? There's a mess. One in seven grandparents in the UK don't see their children. Mm-hmm. What have they done to deserve this punishment? But more importantly, what's the children done? Mm-hmm. I mean, my background, more, all my grandparents were alive until I was, uh, well, my first grandfather died when I was seven, all right. But the rest, the other three, I had lots of time with them as a child growing up. I automatically considered them part of my support network. When I was too bored at home or too annoyed with my horrible parents, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could go and spend time with my grandparents mm-hmm. on occasions, an overnight, a weekend. And that, I would have said, that was better than any therapy. Because I had two people I had no baggage with who were neutral. You knew my parent very well because they were that parent. So mm-hmm. who knew better? And I could just look at things from a different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You weren't having the polarized situation I had with either one of my parents. Not him own my parents. Just that their parents working brutally hard to give us a better chance in life. Which meant that they had to be, well, very hard working and very blunt and expectant. Little me to work as well. Which I consider the crime, obviously, that I should have to work. I should be playing. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so that safety, that extra social support from uncles, only one uncle and two aunts, but that's part of my life. They are, mm-hmm. They're close to me and their children, my cousins, I'm close to them and they are close to me because we remember playing together when we were young, going on little adventures together. You only got one childhood. There's no replay of a childhood. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I hope that people like you will be followed by many others and that they will adopt a proactive, positive approach towards explaining, opening up to the public's eyes and bringing in more public scrutiny and changing the situation from children being a weapon to children being helped enormously. A reversal of where it currently is in the family court process in the UK and apparently the US as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you ever so much for having me. It's a privilege and delighted to have got the opportunity. Thank you. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again in the future for another exciting episode. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you, Marianne. Privilege.